Hello, everybody. That was a version of our In the Lamplight theme music put together by Luke as part of our series of variations on our theme music, which we're putting together for this season. So, Luke Rory, you are welcome to the show. How are you this evening? Well, Karen. Grace, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. I'm very well. Uh, I have a question for you, and this is a question, uh, the most common question I got, actually, after the show we put out recently, not a theme night. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's great. It's brilliant to get feedback from people and they say, I like this and I like that and I preferred show one or I preferred show two or whatever it was. But the most common question I got after it was, who is Orla Sweeney? Yeah. Because Orla came on on part one of the show and she sang two beautiful songs and I guess is possibly not quite as well known among our audience as most of the other performers who, who had been on countless team nights over the years. And so people were, I think, were a bit blown away by what Orla did. And, and so they were all asking, who is Orla Sweeney? And so I guess today on the show, we're going to tell you we're going to let this lady herself tell you who she is, because she is our very special guest today. Um, Orla Sweeney coming right up. And lads, had you come across Orla much before or, or what were your impressions beforehand? No, I would say, yeah, I, I usually I know exactly what you said there. I usually know the set list. You know, I usually, or when I say set list, the performers that are performing the set list and Orla's name popped up. I think I might have even said to you, you know, we were filming it and I said, who is Orla? And you were, you were explaining who she was and, and that kind of stuff. But man, she came out and she nailed it. I think that was the thing that like sometimes, and I remember even my own first couple of performances and other people's first performances, there's an element of nerves and maybe you're not, maybe you don't perform to quite crisp your, your best performance, but Jesus, I think she really pulled it out of the bag. Mm. Yeah, beautifully emotive performances. They were really just, they were kind of spine tingling kind of performances. Yeah. Um, I'd come across Rola before. Um, I'd heard her sing before, but I had no idea just how deep her musical roots were. She's an amazing story. For sure. Mm. Yeah, she does. She, she really is an amazing story and we're going to get stuck into it very soon. Just to give the listeners a bit of an outline This lady grew up all around music. She was in the thick of it from day one. Her father, Oliver, managed bands and was a journalist with with Hot Press from the very early days of the magazine. Bands would stay in the house while they were touring Ireland. Orla released an album of her own music. She produced the groundbreaking Kjol album series in the mid to late 2000s. She has toured Europe and America and she really has an amazing musical story which we're going to get into right now. Orla Sweeney, you are welcome to In The Lamplight. Thank you for having me. No problem. Like is tradition on this show, we are going to welcome you with a brand new poem. I'm not sure, are you aware of this tradition or not? Uh, But we're going to go for it anyway, Orla. So here is a few lines about you. What a start in life today's guest got. Home from the hospital, she was brought. Between two speakers, she was placed in her cot to hear Michal Osuluan at 200 watts. You see, her father was determined to share his lifelong music love affair. And at three weeks, they headed to Balisadere for the folk festival. Impressive childcare. This life of music took its toll. And so Orla herself went into the kyol excelling in many varied roles in folk or trad, the blues or soul. These days, she's out walking, wearing a beanie, 
or listening to tunes, sipping martini, and we're all feeling sketamini. For our guest this week is Orla Sweeney. Woo! That was a great yeah. poem. Man. Oh, I love it. That's <laughs> so amazing, Karen. <laughs> Thank you, Orla. You've done your research. Uh, well, I've spoken to one or two or three or four people Deadly. over the last few days uh, to get an idea of, of what you're about because we had you on the on the show uh, Not A Theme Night recently and we had a brief chat at that point and you told us a few little snippets from your life story and your and your history and music and it just seemed like there was so much more to tell so it's great to have you on the podcast oh it's lovely to be here really excited this is the making of March for me <laughs> good stuff good excellent well well look it seems like you had a incredibly musical childhood as I as I alluded to there in the poem um mm. your father told me the first thing you heard after you were brought home was Michal Osulawan before you yeah. even heard your parents voices in your own ho- in your own house you heard a Michal Osulawan yeah. album is that correct well i don't remember but i'm told um and I would say it was it, it was that way, you know, from there on in, because like you'd get up in the morning, even as far back as I can remember. And the owl lad would have his then record player blaring with whatever freebie he got from Hot Press when he was writing for them. So uh, music would be uh, a, our, our daily wake up call, I suppose, and still is and definitely in my house as well. Um, although some days now it's kind of like baby shark and stuff like that. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm brain training my little fella to follow, follow suit as well at the moment. Okay, great. Yeah, so you were born the day after the first episode of Hot Press was released. So you're pretty much the same age as Hot Press. Yeah, and that gives my age away. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean, well, I don't know what age Hot Press is. I mean, I'm sure it's not available online or anything. No, obviously not. <laughs> but, you, but your dad worked for Hot Press. So, so that was part of why music was everywhere. What, what sort of work did he do? Yeah, so he was a journalist for Hot Press and he was full-time teaching as well. He was a secondary school teacher for, for many, many years before he went full-time into music. Um, and Hot Press had just been started up himself and, and Niall and Jackie Hayden and a couple of other of the, the major writers that were there the whole way through. Um, and um, I just remember him often telling stories about how he was running between Hollis Street and the Hot Press office because mom was in labor and he was quite young then and mom was quite young as well um, and and going for the obligatory pint around the corner for hot press after I was born I think he missed the labor I think my uncle Anthony was there when I was born and dad was running between there and the hot press office so that kind of says it all really doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> fair enough but but your your childhood was spent uh, you know, a lot of it was spent with your father, from what I heard, traveling to various festivals, to various gigs. What, what do you remember of that side of things? That must have been exciting. Yeah, I have huge memories and amazing memories of gigs from a very, very young age and, and heading off everywhere he was going. I wanted to go. And I guess I was so deeply rooted and interested in music from a very young age. I love being around musicians. I loved um, I don't know whether I love the crack, of it, but I love the atmosphere. Um, I loved being at gigs. I loved the loud sound. Um, and I loved I, I loved live music. Like I, I just loved to be in the middle of it and crowds and that kind of thing didn't bother me, whereas they bothered my younger brother a little bit more and he'd never come along. But I don't know, myself and my dad just obviously clicked from a young age and we were both into the the same things and I just got to go. I was very lucky because 
like he wherever he went I was in the days that you could take kids to gigs and you you know everything is kind of over 18s now for the most part but like I was privy to being backstage when you weren't allowed out the front stage hanging out with the musos before they went on stage and met some of my own all-time heroes now when I was very very young um and I suppose my dad was never too embarrassed to bring me along and and uh, and have me as his like kind of helper or whatever, I suppose. Brilliant. I mean, it sounds like an amazing way to spend your, your formative years. And I guess it's no surprise that music was such a huge part of your life, given what you were exposed to. Uh, have you any specific memories of, of meeting? You, you said you met some of your all time her- heroes when you were that age. Um, I guess I suppose the musical heroes came along a little bit older when I recognised um, more, uh, I suppose, who they were and, and how well known they were. And dad would often go off and do interviews for Hot Press and, and some other kind of um, magazines at the time. And he'd bring me along. And I remember going into Bloom's Hotel one of the days and he goes, well, I'm going in to interview um, a lovely woman. Um, I often play her music around the house. It's Nancy Griffith. Come on with me, sure. And I was like, okay. And I remember hanging out with her and sitting around the hotel with her. And I think like Maura O'Connell was there and a few other people who I was only starting to get into at that stage and listen to. And then as the years went on, um, we used to go to the Point Depot all the time. So dad was always covering gigs in the Point Depot. So got to meet a lot of international artists there and he'd bring me there or to the stadium and that's no longer there. And then we'd often go to later gigs after that. Um, And I suppose one of my, I have memories of meeting Trisha Yearwood and hanging out in her dressing room with her and being really impressed. I think I was about 11 maybe. And she was wearing these really cool Doc Martens and I was just like, uh, your shoes are lovely, you know, and that was my kind of big thrill for the night to see that this famous Nashville singer, who, I, she married Garrett Brooks, didn't she? And I was like, she's got deadly shoes, dad, doesn't he? He's like, yeah, yeah, she's going on stage and I love him. There's a lot of people out there to see her. And I was like, yeah, her shoes are cool. But she was lovely. And 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 I think what struck a chord with me as a kid and as a, as a teenager and on into my later teens was how lovely people actually were and um, that I could be in the middle of them and, and be a young person, not be treated like a kid. And I loved that. I loved that about the, that hanging around that kind of group, that there was always a respect for um, your interest in music, regardless of your age. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, probably hit home with me, even though I didn't realise why I liked it and why I liked these people so much. And I was also blown away by talent and loved being at live sessions and, um, you know, the welcome you kind of get, the same thing, the same welcome we get now, but like like loving it, but not understanding why I loved it or wanted to be a part of it then. Um, And then going to little gigs and like Barry's Hotel in Dublin, if you remember Barry's years ago, Kieran, like I know the lads wouldn't have been living in Dublin back then because this is in the 80s and there were so many gigs there um, late at night and being snuck in there by dad one night um, and he had to review, God, I can't, oh, Flacco Jimenez, who's an amazing um, accordion player and Flacco was up there maybe it was Peter Rohn and a couple of people and um, the the security guard wasn't having any of me being allowed in he's like no way that young one's you know she's too young or whatever and dad was like look I'm just, I'm just on my way home from the Point Depot I've got to review this gig for Hot Press I'm bringing her in and um, he said I'll be out in two minutes or whatever and uh, I had to, I wasn't allowed into the crowd so I was left down the back 
and um, for a minute or two and hid under the coat of Mary Black and Maura O'Connell as they minded <laughs> me and left dad up, up the front. Class. And like I was at 12 o'clock at night in school the next morning, like not a bothering me in the middle of it all. And I do remember those kind of gigs and like, look, at that's special. And I don't know if the youth of today will experience those kind of intimate gigs and hanging out with people that, you know, you really admire because they're not so freely available um, to hang out with anymore, you know. So um, I do feel privileged and, and, and uh, you know, well-reared in that respect. Yeah, great. You mentioned Nancy Griffith there. I love Nancy Griffith. But yeah. uh, can you remember times when you, you know, you met someone famous like that, like Nancy Griffith or whatever, but didn't actually realise who it was until years and years later and and then tweaked oh that's who that was quite possibly because I would hear maybe not the faces Luke but I would hear songs and I'd go dad who's that and he'd go sure you met that person now in 1982 in the <laughs> festival of whatever or wherever and I was like well you know I was quite a long time but um so maybe yeah but like I've actually <laughs> I thought you'd heard another story there because I had a major major mess up one time of meeting somebody and I didn't know it was that person. And I thought he was the tour manager and um, it was a really famous person. And he got really pissed off at me um, for asking him, was it, was he Tony, the tour manager? And he went, no, I'm such and such. And, I, you know, you should know that if you're backstage here. And I just went, oh. Are you not willing to tell us who it is? Oh, I better not. I better not. Maybe later. You know, actually, I was just thinking there that um, have you ever seen the film Almost Famous, that film that's about a young journalist that goes to to write a story about about Yeah. Right. So granted, you weren't writing the stories, but it's kind of a similar world. You're in a kind of a grown up music scene experience and stuff that young people really probably never get to experience the backstage of a, of a headline gig. Do you feel like that was like a special thing? Do you feel pr- like that? happy that you got to have them experiences when you were so young oh a hundred percent Rory like um and they still live on with me and as I said I continued throughout my teenage years going to these gigs with my dad and I used to get the living daylight slagged out me by my friends because they were all heading to the Temple of Sound which was a major dance place in Dublin at the time and I was like you know heading for a trad night you know in <laughs> Vicar Street or somewhere like that or one of Whelan's or somewhere um, and and loving it and they were like oh you know we're all going off doing whatever um, to a rave for the night and Orla's heading off to see some Shanno singer somewhere and they still pick me and we're all in their 40s <laughs> they still pick me over it um, but I don't mind because I hated dance music and I still have no time for it so I'm very glad and I am very privileged that I got to go and I suppose it gave me it gave me a grounding for what was to come in my in my kind of working life and throughout my career then I had no idea what I was setting myself up for and although I wanted to go you know for at some stage in my life for a couple of years I wanted to go a polar opposite way than the way that my parents wanted me to go I was like nah I'm doing this and I'm doing that and you're not telling me what to do but it was just there and it was in me and every time I tried to get away from music a little bit, I would always be drawn back into it or would follow me in some sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. OK, Orla. So look, this this tradition of your dad bringing you around to gigs obviously continued into well into adulthood. You told us a story uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago about going to see a Richard Thompson gig, I think, recently with your dad, who is who is one of your musical heroes, uh, if I remember correctly. And you did a Richard Thompson 
song on the show with us, which we're going to play now. Do you want to just tell us a wee bit about this song before we play it? So as we saying to you before, I, I'm a major fan of Richard Thompson and again, was privileged to see him quite a few times over the years. I can't remember too many of them, but again, I was told I was at his gigs and um, but his music would have been prominent in our house. Um, and the older I get, the more of my dad's albums that I still steal um, or borrow and, and and play. And he always has the latest Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson collections and stuff. So I'm still listening to him. And I went to see him two years ago in Galway and it kind of reinstilled that love because when you're watching somebody do what the likes of Richard Thompson is able to do on stage, it's mind blowing. And whether you're into folk music, trad music, heavy metal, whatever, you cannot sit back and watch the the, the likes of him and not have huge appreciation for the talent that he has. Um, and what an incredible songwriter, like everything that he's touched. And I suppose credit to him with all the people that cover his music. So um, I know I'm way down the list there, but I'd love to do a lot more of his of his songs um, and I, I spend a lot of time singing them around the house as well. Lovely. Okay, well, this is uh, with Shamie O'Dowd on guitar and vocals. Orla Sweeney with Richard Thompson's Dimming of the Day. This old house is falling down around my ears I'm drowning in the river of my tears When all my will is gone Why don't you come? 
mind with me I'm living for the night we stay Okay, so that was Orla and Shami O'Dowd with Richard Thompson's Dimming of the Day. And Orla, another thing you mentioned on the show that I, I, want, I wanted to explore for a few minutes was the aspect of actually singing. You have obviously been involved in music your whole life, but if I'm not mistaken, your singing has been a little bit here and a little bit there with some gaps in between. This performance that we just heard has come after one of those gaps, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, and if I'm right, how is it coming back to performing after a little break from it? That performance in the Hawkswell was huge for me. Um, a, I've never sung either of those songs before outside of, you know, my own domain here. And um, and I love them. And I'm, I'm a nervous wreck going on stage a lot of the time. Uh, to be honest with you. And that's really what holds me back from performing, that I just get myself just a bit too worked up about whether I'm going to mess it up or not. Or, you know, I just, I doubt myself too much with singing. And and no matter how many times people tell you like that, you sounded great, you did great. If you're not believing it yourself, then there's nothing that's going to change that. But there's been a bit of a change, I suppose, in me in that I've started listening to myself again and listening to my voice and exploring my voice a little bit more. And I don't mean I don't mean by singing, but I mean by talking um, and by talking and kind of verbalizing a lot of other things in my life. I'm able to sing again, which might sound a bit strange, but it's it's just something that's kind of gradually happening again. And I don't have the same level of fear and, and angst that's in me um, because I feel like maybe I don't know, maybe it's just I'm getting older or life has changed me in ways. But I just feel like I'm a little bit more open so I can be more open with my voice, whereas my voice was kind of shut down for for many, many years. I can turn it on when I have to. And I'm a great public speaker and I can kind of handle being on stage in my profession. Um, And I have done, I was a teacher for years and in in, in a serious uh, hardcore school in the north side of Dublin. I could stand in front of any room. But if you put me as Orla into a room full of people I know and I have to sing, I would just curl up. I would be in the fetal position and I just want to just disappear. I wanted to be invisible. Um, and that's happened to me so many times. And I think every time I was asked to sing or perform then, I had this memory of, oh, Jesus, I'm going to mess it up. I'm not able for this. I'm not good enough and I can't do it. Um, and a lot of that came back because, and I don't know if, if, if you if you know of the tour that I did in 2013, where I took to the stage again for the first time after a long break, because I'd been working in music and um, my career was, you know, very separate to me performing. And uh, I got offered a place on this show, one of these Celtic shows, the Tours Europe. And I was between kind of, I was, I was working, I'd left my full-time long-term job, which was in, within the Irish language. And I then spent a year teaching Irish to Bernard Dunn and working on his TV show and doing a whole lot of other things in terms of media. And this came up all of a sudden, and I was heading for America 
and life stopped because I was in my parents' house in where they live in South Sligo. And I, I slipped on their bathroom floor and, and broke my ankle and slapped my knee and stuff and ended up staying in Sligo where I didn't want to be at the time. Um, but then it was recovering and this came up and I went off and I, 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 I took to this tour around Europe um, with as the lead singer on this troupe of, of women singing Irish songs for Germans and everybody clapping and having a ball. But it crucified me, absolutely crucified me, the tour. Couldn't hack it. Well, I did hack it. But I hated it, hated it because it just wasn't me. And was it was that the songs weren't you, Orla? The songs weren't me. The performance wasn't me. Um, I met some lovely people on the tour. We were living like sandwiches on a tour bus for months and months. Um, I'd say I was the eldest of all the the the, the girls that were on the tour. Um, some of them had serious theatre backgrounds. Were kind of sing singer dancer types, and I'm just going. Oh, Jesus, I can't move. I can't twirl my wedding dress on stage around like you can. I can't do all of these things. And something that probably should have given me an awful lot more confidence began to shrink my confidence, even though I was out there every night, heavily made up, you know, these fabulous big dresses on us and everybody's loving you and asking you for your autograph. I was just, I was dying. So it stopped me when I came back from that I think the fear that I had for those couple of months on tour and not enjoying myself stopped me from singing again for a long time. Hence why I'm trying to come back into it again. Okay. And what about what about before that, Orla? So that's that's maybe eight, nine years ago. Before that, was it similar for you in terms of confidence or were you more comfortable, say, in your in your 20s when you were doing the singing back then? I suppose I didn't have as much self-awareness in my early 20s when I started off. So when we recorded... My debut album, the, the Blue Note back then, as I said before, it was all such a whirlwind that I didn't have time to stop and think. And, you know, there was a huge amount of positivity surrounding what I was doing at that time. Um, and it wasn't negative. But all of a sudden from that, you do um, when you're signed up and you've got to do your press tours and you're doing all of this and you start to kind of face a little bit of negativity um, along the way or people are questioning you um. And I remember one particular incident, which I wasn't really prepared for, is going in for styling, um, you know, because it was all about your look and this Irish look at the time. And I was this Celtic singer and blah, blah, blah. And this woman saying to me um, in the PR office in Dublin going, oh, you're way too dark. I mean, that's never going to work. We're going to lighten you up and Jesus. you need to be wearing more pastels. We need more pastels on this girl. And I was like, pastels? Well, like, what was that? Like, um, yeah. and just being judged on everything. So I was like, oh, I don't like this. Please don't, don't do it to me. But as a performer, yeah, I could do it. Um, and, and I got on stage and had a, an amazing band, went to America, toured a lot with other people and, Jesus Christ, like I was blessed in the people that I got to share the stage with over those years. But the confidence definitely dwindled um, with kind of um, entering the music world at a professional level, if you get me. Do you think it had anything to do with the childhood you had and the exposure you had as a child, seeing all these amazing performers night after night uh, and all of a sudden that's you and you have to do that and you have to live up to all these people that you've seen over the years. Yes, I do think there is quite a bit of that because you do measure yourself against those that you really admire and the people that you watch. 
And um, I think if your confidence in yourself is anyway dented at all, um, that I think, well, artists, we're all very judgmental on ourselves anyway. And and and, and um, I, I know like I spent like I, I spent quite a bit of time writing songs and, and like dad would always say, Orla, that's really good. Like, that's a good song. And I go, oh, no, but I can't sing that in, out in public because someone's going to know what I'm thinking then if, if I sing what's in my head then they're going to know what I'm what I'm like yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. or that fe- that fella's going to know I was mad about him in Donegal like you know that time <laughs> and blah, blah blah like stuff like that so I was really conscious all the time of not putting myself out there and wanted to blend into the background way more so than be the front woman like when I went on stage and they'd set the band up, I'm like, no, no, could the band just be all here? Can they all be here? Like they were my scarf. Yeah. Um, I didn't want people behind me. I just wanted, I'll just stand at the back and they can, they can do their thing because they're better. Okay. That kind of okay. thing. Yeah. Um, and I still have to snap myself out of that. Well, look, I mean, that's, thank you for being so honest about that, Orla. I think it's, it's something uh, many of us face as musicians and something many of us have to deal with from time to time, you know? And so look, it sounds like you're, you're, you're coming out the right side of it. And we certainly hope to see lots more of you singing in the, in the coming weeks, months and years, maybe. Um, it was great to have you on the show. Um, so we're going to play another piece of music, Orla, from that album you mentioned, The Blue Note. So can you just tell us a little bit about that album? It was, it was early 2000s and a lot of the songs were written by yourself and your dad. Is that right? Yeah, that's true, Kieran. Um, Myself, well, dad was working on another project at the time and brought me into do some backing vocals on it. And um, we kind of were working with a, a core group of musicians. And out of that came my own album, which was turned around very, very quickly. And um, I suppose we had studio resources. I was very privileged to, to, to have all of the things in place that most artists, you know, <laughs> are saving and scrimping and, and spending years trying to pull together. I had a studio there. I had all the, the best of the best to play with me and all I had to do was go in and sing. And to be honest with you, I did very little um, and left the vocals with them and I heard the album when it was done. Um, I wasn't part of the mixing. I wasn't part of putting it all together. It was put together for me. I sang the songs um, and went back to university in Liverpool where where I was at the time and, and kind of heard through the grapevine from dad then, this is happening or there's interest from here. And um, it was at a time when, when Celtic music was really on the rise and, um, you know, if you could sing and you were from Ireland and, and you were younger, you, you had long hair and, and and you could handle yourself in an interview. Everyone wants to talk to you. And I could. And um, I it kind of it was a bit of a whirlwind then um, flying over and back to, from Liverpool, kind of collaborating with other artists, getting called for gigs. I remember we got booked for a couple of really lovely things that we were a part of. And the lads that I played with um, as well, um, Davey Muldrew, who's one of them, he wrote one of the songs on the album too. Like they were just great. So no more than yourself and Shamey and the lads and everything, they're all well used to it and they'd go on stage and they would they would carry me. Um, so it made it really, really easy for me. And again, putting my own stamp on my own music and putting it out there into the great big world was huge for me because some of the stuff dad was kind of was heavily involved in writing other parts I'd kind of thrown in a few lines here and there then there was one or two songs that I had written myself um and I was petrified again of that whole somebody's gonna know what I'm thinking buzz um 
But they got out there and they did really well. And, you know, it paid for university. It brought me some amazing opportunities, brought a lot of travel. As I said, collaborations with other artists that I could only dream of working with again um, and introduced me to a massive core of people. But probably at the wrong time for me in my life um, because of my age, because what I was doing, I was overseas and I wasn't moving back at that time. Um, Had I those opportunities now, my God, you'd be running out the door jumping on it uh, straight away. But I didn't realize how big it was at the time, which was probably a good thing because any sort of negative press that I was kind of um, not receiving, but like kind of aware of at all, or if there was any sort of judgment in anything, I would take that to heart. Um, So I'm kind of glad I was a bit oblivious to it all at the time. But look, I got to spend a lot of time with my dad and um, a lot of time with some serious musos. And again, some great support acts um, I got um, playing, you know, centre stage before Kate Rusby came on, Paul Brady and Alton and a load of people like that. And that alone is a blessing, even if it was 20 years ago. I'm, I'm very, very thankful for it all happening. Look, we're going to play this piece of music from uh, your album, The Blue Note. And this is called Donegal Rain. A storm of cream. Why did we let it strain? The winter winds, they make up me to the bone. I was lost and lonely all alone and I was hard but you were cruel Tonight you sits this lonely film Miss you now you're gone I love you now you're gone I'm thinking about you Um, did your dad's job and, and having grown up, you know, watching your dad do his job, did that make you more aware of the, the journalism side of the industry when you kind of became an artist in your early 20s or, you know, the critical side of the industry? You mentioned taking criticism to heart. Were you more aware that it was there because you had seen the inner workings of the industry from such a young age? Yeah, definitely. And like, when you're with working within the industry or when you're an artist within the industry, like there's always hype. There's so much hype and you're the next big thing. And God, this is amazing. This person's really, you know, interested in signing you and RTE wants you on for this show and that show and blah, blah, blah. But my mother is the grounded one in our family. And my mom always had a say and, 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 and something I grew up with was like, until that check is cleared in the bank, you never get excited about anything. And I suppose that's the way I've been with the industry. I I, um, I doubt it quite a bit. Um, I recognise the kind of people that are involved in it for fickle reasons, for artistic reasons, for love and for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I learned an awful lot about the industry, Luke. And again, 
From traveling with dad, I got to go to the Cannes Medium Festival a couple of years of what I think I was 19 was the first year I went, which was huge for me because I was working with every um, every organization, every music organization from Ireland who were there representing all the artists from Ireland. You're all in this massive big hall, the Palais in Cannes, spent the week there, met people from all over the world from the music industry. But I quickly began to become aware and, and, and knowledgeable about what people were about and uh, why they were in it. And I got to spend lots of late nights out with people, you know, at gigs in Cannes and watching showcases and watching the talk and listening to it and listening to the behind the scenes stuff. And you kind of learn, you know, um, who to who to trust and who 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 to take with a pinch of salt as well along the way. And I think that made me much more sceptical about my own career um, and music. I didn't really want a huge part of it because I didn't want to be one of those people who are kind of fluttered around and, and careless, carelessly disposed of if if my album wasn't signed by, you know, the Australian publishing company that they were trying to nail on your behalf or whatever. So I was a bit sceptical about it and, and kind of took a little bit of a backseat sometimes. But it was it, life lessons uh, were great and disappointing also. But that's life, isn't it? That's a really interesting insight into you know, the music industry, I suppose, and, and the, as you say, the people you can trust and those you have to take with a pinch of salt. You've worked with, I mean, an awful lot of really, really great musicians over the years. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to just chat to you a little bit about, I guess, the project that brought you in contact with a lot of these people, which was the Kyol series. You produced a series of albums called Kyol, which the idea of which was to get artists to perform some of their famous tracks in Irish. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, the Kyol series I took over from Seachtain na Gaeilge, which is a, a national and international Irish language festival um, in 2006, I think. And um, I was based in Dublin at the time and, and started working on the Kyol series of albums then. Um, which was a huge deal for me because it was right up my street. I love the Irish language um, as a Gaelgor um, from an early age. And um, I love being in music situations and recording and meeting artists and stuff. So that this was this was just the dream for me. Um, quite a difficult one sometimes because we had to source all the artists, put the album together on a minuscule budget. It was done for charity. Um, and we did, I think the first two years that I recorded them, we did double albums. So we were talking about 30 something tracks and I had about three months to turn that around each year. Um, so your foot was to the floor all the time on it. And um, there were a lot of late nights, a lot of late nights in studios um, working with artists who were completely, for the most part, out of their comfort zones. Um, very, very few of them would have had uh, a kind of working knowledge of the Irish language in terms of being able to speak it, let alone sing in Irish. Um, so before you had, you had the songs translated and the connections made and the artists lined up and the theme of the album and all the rest uh, done, then you had to go into studio with them. And that's where it could get kind of tough. And it was it was backbreaking along the way, not for me, but for them as well. Um you know, you really, I suppose, saw saw how stripped down your artists became when you tore their song apart and rewrote it in another language and told them that they were coming into the studio at this particular time on this day and that we were going to nail it. They didn't believe me. Um, 
and we did it and, and we did a bloody great job of it and uh, I had a great team with great engineers and um, some great translators working on board. I remember the first year I was had kind of, I'd worked for a company called Ngoom, an Irish language book publishing company in the earlier days. And I used to have great chats with Gabriel Rosenstock, who then I'd gotten on board to help me with some of the uh, translations. And then some cool musos that I knew around Dublin and Ireland who um, who spoke Irish and but could perform and, and, and write the lyrics. So it was really important that people kind of understood the value of the music and the lyrical flow as well for translations because oftentimes translations lose the meanings of the songs so we couldn't do that which would freak artists out as well um, so it's a huge set of challenges um, I loved it We I think I did about five albums and um, we got number to number three in the charts in the top three over over the three years I think and we got number one one year um, in 2008 and we're backed by Today FM and everything. So Irish was becoming cool. And, you know, all these kids were singing Monday's song, Mexico, Osquelga in classrooms and Declan O'Rourke was involved and Damien Dempsey. So many deadly artists who were just really prominent at the time. Um, and you were hearing the Irish language on the radio airwaves again, which was something that you never heard outside of uh, Radio Nagelthachta. And young people were interested in it. Like, not my young, not I, like I was in my 30s doing it, but like, you know, kids in secondary schools, kids that were going to the Gale Talk, like they were getting into it again. And that for all of us involved, artists included, was so huge and so important and vital for the promotion of the Irish language as well at the time. I remember them albums. Do you? Yeah, I was in secondary school when you would have been making them albums. Wow. And I remember people coming in from the Gale Talk and then people sending away from them. I think uh, Today FM used to do a thing like where you could get them. And at one point there was a huge hype for them. It was massive and it was like... And I think that that kind of that vibe, that kind of cool vibe of modern Irish or modern Irish artists singing in Irish became massive all of a sudden. It was like, who else is going to do their tune ask Elga? I remember that whole I remember that whole thing that happened. So fair play to you. you definitely made an impact in our school. I don't know. I, I can't speak for any other schools, but our one loved you and <laughs> loved what you were doing. That's amazing. Amazing. And like, that's, that's exactly when, when like I've grown up with the Irish language as well as music. And, um, you know, I've often everywhere I've gone, I've heard, you know, oh, I've no interest in Gaelic. It was bet into me in school and blah, blah, the age old stuff. Whereas like, you know, maths is bet into you in school. Everything's bet into you in school. But, you know, I just wanted to kind of make it cool. And, we we all worked like all the people that worked on board with Shacht and Nguelga and 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 Conra and everything at the time. Like we all had the same kind of um, kind of mission statement that we wanted it out there. We we didn't want to be separated from the wider community. That Gaelga is a thing for everybody, whether you understand a word of it or not. People people love music, and music is a, as a universal language. And this, like, I'll, I'll give you one example. Actually, I went to. Um, to the Coronas concert in the Olympia one of the years. And we'd done, I think it was one of the first or second songs we did with Danny and the Coronas. Um, and, and Danny is a legend. But Danny sang um, sang the song Osquelga on stage at the Coronas gig. And I was there with my mate, pint in hand, because I love the Coronas. And the next thing, the whole crowd starts singing in Irish. And we were up the front at the VIP. And I'm not blowing myself up that we we're in the VIP section, but yeah. we were, we were up the front. 
And from behind, I can just hear everybody singing in Irish in the, the whole place. And I was like... Was that Heroes or Ghosts by any chance? Heroes or Ghosts, yes. That's the second song I learned to accompany myself on the guitar. And I learned it with the Irish verse that Danny from the Coronas did from that album. No way. It, well, that was the biggest song in our school at one point. And nobody knew the English version of it. Wow. Everyone just knew the Irish version of it. Which which is amazing. Yeah, unreal. Unreal. Like. Oh, that's like, you know, it's just, it's lovely to hear that as well, Rory. Like, so nice. And like the fact that like the likes of Danny and, and Mundy and and Declan and we did Des Bishops jump around Oswego one year and we were normalising stuff that was really, you know, that people wanted to listen to. It made no difference that it was in the Irish language. And then as that grew... The artists grew with it and they started to perform it at their own gigs, Osquelga, because they were so terrified. Coming into the studio, you've got, you know, you're babysat a little bit, you're, 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 you know, you're in a bit of a comfort zone because you're not reproducing it live. So for them to reproduce it live, well, I was like a proud mother anywhere I went to see these, you know, men and women up there singing Osquelga, going, this is incredible. But to hear an audience singing it back, I know how it felt for me. So I can't imagine how it feels for them. Such an accomplishment. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, the, the it's a who's who of the Irish music industry or the, I mean, the, the list, the listing on those albums from, as you say, Declan O'Rourke, Mundy, Glenn Hansard, the Coronas. Um, I want to ask you about one of the tunes you mentioned there, because a friend of the show and actually a man we're having on the show in a few weeks, uh, Dave Flynn, uh, performed for years with our band Lame Heart. Uh, which is the Des Bishop oh, version? No the Des Bishop version of "Jump Around" you just mentioned, and this off this amazed me because it's a rap. You know, it has it still has to rhyme Osquelga, You know, but it's, they're completely different rhymes. It was so cleverly written. You know, so I was wondering, how, did you have any insight into how that was actually? Because it's it's still it still is true, and and the meaning is the same, but yet they've these really really clever rhymes, uh, Osquelga to keep the legitimacy of the rap genre, I guess. How, how did that come about? Well, that one was done by a lad in Galway, I think, um, if I remember correctly. And I was the one who recorded it with Des in Dublin. Um, and he came in uh, to the studio and I know we won't be watching this, but hope he's not. But Des was quite, you know, this was a huge deal for him because you know, he's incredible in terms of being in the spotlight and being on stage. But again, taking this for for taking him from his comfort zone and doing this Osquelga, he was terrified at the time of doing it. He really wanted to. He'd learned so long. He's taken so long out of his kind of um, uh, off stage to learn Irish, spent a huge amount of time in the Connemara Gaeltacht, etc. But to do this again, you were stripping him bare um, and it was massive and it was a hard day's work. It was hard on him. To do it, we had to mess around with some of the lines. We had to redo them. And, and again, trying to that's something we often had to do within the studio that it'd be translated. But I'd have to sit down and we'd have to look at a different way to do it because it just wasn't flowing lyrically or whatever. The artist wasn't happen, happy with it. So you were really kind of thinking on the spot. And like, I'm I, I'm a fluent Gaelgor, but I'm not a translator. So there's a different kind of, you know, it's, it's a different game completely. But um we worked it out anyway, and Des then subsequently did. We, I was running a big Vicarage Street show for Shock the Nguega with a lot of the Keol artists. Des came on and did that on stage, and it was just unbelievable. Like, and he he powered through it. Um, so I would say, you know, serious kudos goes to him for for doing it because it's a mouthful in English to do it. Oscar was was huge. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. and 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 yeah, 
as Rory said, you know, he spoke of the impact uh, Heroes of Ghosts had in his school. Well, this this song, Lamey Heart, you know, we played it for years with with our band, Anything Goes, and it was always a huge hit, wow. be it be it in the pub or at a wedding. It was yeah. Dave, Dave just rocked it and the holy the whole floor hopping with it, you know, every night. That's deadly. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay, we're gonna play a little snippet of of one of the one of the songs uh, from one of those albums or that you were involved in. This is Eddie Reader with uh, her version Osquelga of Perfect. So tell us about that day in the studio, Orla, with with Eddie Reader. How how was that? Oh, that was that was that's one that I will never lose from memory, and um, I think that was one of my my favorite days ever. Um, Eddie came over to Ireland, and we had been in contact with her, and she's such a good sport, and she obviously hadn't a word of Irish, but had co- contacted, I think, Maraidney um, Whaley or one of her pals of Belga, and was like, "Is this going to be hard to do?" and I better not do a Scottish accent. And they were like, no, go for it, you be grand. So she came over and I picked her up from her hotel and we went off to Westland Studios that day to do that track. And I had the band set up for her. The band was kind of lads that she'd worked with over here previously. And we did a live recording of that song for the album. So we didn't have a backing track for Perfect. Um, so it was a big, a big day, like, um, and a lot of work. So the, I'm sure the lads were pros got it done but so the way that we worked it with Eddie was um, I was in the booth in the singing booth with her and I sang one line and she sang the next line because that was one of the, the only day that we had to work on it she was doing um, the um, that big venue in, in Dublin I think later that night or the day after or something so we had one day to go at it and uh, so I stood beside her oh no sorry previous to that I'd gone in and recorded the song myself and sent it to her so she'd kind of get the 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 intonation the phonetics and all the rest and written it all out for her and um so she had the basics of it so i'd, I'd sing a line and then she'd sing a line and then we kind of do the whole verse together and then she'd just blast off the verse and it was done literally within a couple of hours and then we went back in did the uh, the harmonies and she did the harmonies and the lads belted away and and that was it but that was kind of that was historical in terms of Kyo because like we'd had the Water Boys, so we'd had Mike and Steve and, and they had done a, a version of their song Australia in 2006, I think. Um, but Eddie doing Perfect was massive, which then became Furfa and um, it was a huge pickup from the media. So everybody wanted a piece of Eddie Reader, you know, this amazing icon from Fairground Action, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, how did you get her to do it? And it's as simple as we asked her. We got in contact and I asked her, 
Um, and, and that was the way to get to most of the musicians because if you were pissing around with record companies and management and stuff like that, you often never got to them. And um, most people are interested in doing it once they hear, but kind of word of mouth got out there with Kyol as well that say I asked, you know, you Kieran to come in and do it, then you'd ring Rory and go, oh Rory, you did that before. What was it like? And were they like Nazis with the Gale gang? Were they this, that and the other? And was it all right? And the other person go, no, I did it last year. Shit was great. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of thing, because people have that view that if you're a whale girl, you're going to be really, really, you know, hard to deal with and pushy and all the rest, which isn't the case. Well, I wasn't like that anyway, I don't think. Um, so Eddie, yeah, Jesus, amazing. The Late Late Show had us on and she did so many different interviews in Ireland and, and started learning the Cupola Fuckle then as well. And, you know, was was widely broadcasting them on from her Twitter feed and everything. So she did a huge amount for the Irish language as a Scottish woman with no Gaelga yeah. and put many others to shame. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. And you became you became friendly with Eddie as, as a result, Orla. Yeah, she's a lovely person. Lovely person to be around. And, and I'm a fan of hers as well. I'm a huge fan of her music and have been for many, many years. And again, she would have been probably one of the people I went to see growing up. But later on in life, you get to meet them again and, and, you, and you don't know that you're ever going to be in that close proximity to them. But... Um, I feel very fortunate for for you know um, having met her and having performed with her and having worked with her. Great, great. Well, look, there's a there's an Eddie Reader link to this next song we're going to play. Uh, you did it on on the show, not a theme night with us recently as well. It was written by uh, her husband John Douglas, and uh, it's called Wild Mountainside. And this was this was with with Luke on the accordion. Uh, with Neve Crowley on the fiddle, with Shamie O'Dowd on the guitar. This was uh, part of Not A Theme Night recently, and it was a real treat to do with you, Orla. So let's hear a bit of it now. Beauty is within grasp Hear the islands call The last smile is upon us I'll carry you if you fall I know the armor's heavy now I know the heart inside It's beautiful just over The wild mountainside Snow is falling all over Out of clear blue skies Crow is
So that was Orla singing Wild Mountainside. And in fairness to you, Orla, now I hadn't met you before. For people that don't know, my, my production company, Temperhound, did the filming of, of Kieran's Not a Theme Night. And we hadn't met before, but I was blown away by your emotion in both of your songs and your emotion in your performance. It was so strong. It was so clear. It was clearly intent. It was an emotional intent that was there. It's sometimes very hard to get from people, but you had it in abundance. Like our close-up camera, we actually had to, we had to make a conscious decision to try and cut away from our close-up camera of you because it was just so interesting to watch. Even when we didn't cut the camera, if we just left it on a static of, of you singing your song, it was so interesting to watch with your emotion. But I wonder where is that just natural? Um, or is that something that obviously through your years of experience, your years of watching, your years of performing, or is it just something that's in you? When you sing these type of songs, it just, your heart was on your sleeve. How did that happen? Jesus, that's a good question, Rory, because I think that night, oftentimes when I've done gigs before and over the years, you're very prepared for them. You're very rehearsed. And that night, obviously with COVID restrictions and everything, you walked on the stage, you did what you had to do and you left again because we were all, you know, keeping to it. So I was more nervous, I think, um, that I would mess it up and that the lads would be there trying to, you know, go, right, or we'll we do that again, we'll do that again. Um, I was more nervous, I think, than anything. So that's probably where the emotion was. But also, I think when I'm singing those two songs, because they mean an awful lot to me, I get them um, and I'm in the songs. And also um, there was there was no audience. It was kind of looking ahead. And I I, I planted a few people in the audience that, that I, I I care dear, dearly about. And I'm, I'm one person who's since passed away. And I was like, you're sitting up there now. I'm just going to look at you and I'm going to. I'm going to sing the songs to you and, you, you know, I know you'll enjoy them. And that's where I went in my own head, to be honest with you. Um, and I oftentimes I find I'm terrible on, on stage because I will just be gone in my own head with the song. I can't sing a song if I'm not in the song myself. Um, and I don't 
get into music that I'm not, that my head, like a story. If, if a book doesn't catch me in the first chapter, I won't read the rest of it. I'd have to be caught up in it. And it's the same for songs that I like to sing. I have to be in the song. And I guess that's where I went. I wasn't thinking about it on the night, but um, I felt a great sense of privilege to be there as well and, and, and performing with, with Shaney as well to my side. Like I didn't really envisage that I would be there um, and that I, I'd get the chance to do that. So there was a huge amount of, of gratitude for it. And I was like, I'm not messing this up. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to let the nerves get the better of me because this is great. And that was huge for me, like in terms of talking about confidence and stuff, that was huge for me to kind of go, you know, nerves, you can do one now because I'm going to enjoy this and I'm going to, I'm going to make the most out of it. And I guess that's what I did. Lovely. Lovely. Well, you did a fabulous job. Well done. I have a question for you, actually. Um, I know Rory's just after asking you kind of a, a tough question there, a good question. And uh, maybe this one is is slightly tougher. Let it never be said that we pull our punches here on In the Lamplight. Um, but I think we have to address the elephant in the room. Uh, anyone who's listening to the podcast can't see this, obviously, but the people who see our social media snippets will. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the headphones that you're wearing? <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> I couldn't find my own headphones. I think they're in the car from a walk on the beach earlier. And then I remembered that I bought these for my child um, a couple of months ago and that I hadn't taken them out of the package. So they are Paw Patrol headphones <laughs> with little Marshall ears for anybody who knows what the Paw Patrol are. And I better hide them again before my young lad gets up in the morning or he'll be he'll be stuck to them. So, um, yeah, I think I'm going to claim them for myself. They're pretty cool, aren't they? It's a good look, Orla. It's a great look. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Listen, uh, Orla, thank you so much for coming on In The Lamplight and sharing so many of your stories. Do you know, I said to you at the end of the interview on Not A Theme Night that I, I'd love to hear the rest of your story sometime. And even now, after talking to you for an hour, I still feel the same way. It still feels like we've only scratched the surface. Um, but look, thanks so much for, for sharing everything with us. And and look, let's let's hope we get to sing and play with you lots more in the future. Um, no, I don't talk about it much these days. Like that is the reason we all did it, like because that he came up playing music. And I'm thinking, is it I who did something wrong? But from saying yes to looking after my grandmother, I got one of the greatest passions that I've ever had in my life. It was just it was an incredible place to be, just so vibrant. Oh, you are you know, the closest thing we have to a rock star. Lockdown, I'm bored with it now. I'm fucking bored with yeah. it. I wish it would come yeah. off. <laughs> we here at In The Lamplight would like to unreservedly apologise. <laughs> That's beautiful, the two of you. Beautiful. <laughs> That's great now, lads. That's a heap of people that will never, ever come on our podcast now. Um, right, I, 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 I have a competition. This is between Sinead and Luke. But then she hit a fake high C. He's a man with a huge soul and a bigger heart. <laughs> Luke's happy about it by the sounds. Oh, wow, lads. How good was that? Is this, um, is this a trick question? You are very welcome to the podcast. It is. What about you and that handsome lamplighter? Okay, so that was Orla Sweeney. And for anybody asking me the question after not a theme night, who is Orla Sweeney? I hope that interview helped because it certainly helped me I found out lots about her lads how about yourselves how did you find that chat yeah look I thought it was 
you know, like again, not really knowing much about Orla Sweeney. And then you, as you heard there, there was a couple, she had without me knowing and without her knowing a fairly big impact musically in our school. So thus on me, I just found that super, super interesting. And when she started talking about Danny from the Coronas singing the song Oscalga, it just flooded back this memory of this tune. I remember trying to learn to play it and I remember everyone singing it. And I just, uh, yeah, I did not even know in the English version of the song because it was so prevalent to the eye. I just thought it, w- it was unbelievable. And then like for anyone, it's my, my other thing that I said to her there about, about her emotion, stick on to, uh, get onto Facebook or, or YouTube whenever we release um, her version of Wild Mountainside from, uh, from Not A Theme Night. And you'll see exactly what I mean. So I think that will probably be up on our, on our, on our, on our YouTube and our Facebook. Just give it a look. You'll you'll see what I mean. She's got serious passion behind her singing. Yeah, you'll actually get to see that performance first if you sign up to our email list on lamplightpod.com forward slash subscribe. Um, oh, we- you slipped that very, very smoothly in there. <laughs> you chance you I get, segue master. Huh? Any chance I get, I tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you know, it was, it was amazing. And, and like to produce those albums i mean it's it she said she'd three months to 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 roll around 30 tracks like uh, of of with artists who aren't many of whom aren't used to the irish language it sounds like a mammoth project that was nearly the most impressive part of the whole story for me for sure uh, how how those projects came about and and the the fun yet the stress that must have gone on while they were happening Sounds like a Kieran Quinn virtual team night. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounds worse than it, lads. It sounds worse than it. Um, Luke, how about yourself? I, I I really enjoyed it. Like I I like hearing inside perspectives on the music industry. You know, all three of us are involved in in the creative industry in in some shape or form. And um, I think people, when you look at at music industry from the outside. You see the artists and you see that kind of glitzy front end of it. But there's so much that goes on in the music industry that most people really aren't even aware of. So the whole interview is just a great insight into into that. I mean, Orla's had a career as a performer, but she's also had, you know, a huge impact as a as a behind the scenes uh, figure in the music industry and just Rory's, the influence that she had on, on, on Rory alone during the school days is, is evidence of that. So that was, that's really interesting. I hope it was interesting for people to listen to that, you know, and get a look in, into that other layer. Uh, also just the sheer amount of amazing people that she has met or, or worked with. You know, some, I feel some, like she held herself back on the name drop. <laughs> I feel yeah. like she could have name dropped for like an hour and a half, and she yeah. just stopped herself from doing it. But do you know, do you know what? It, you got to like, admire that too, though. Yeah, there's nothing worse because, than a name dropper. Because <laughs> some, you know, there's there are people out there who, uh, you know at some point in their life they had a shite on the same toilet as Mick Jagger and they'll go out of their way they'll go out of their way to work that into every single conversation with every new person they meet oh yeah by the way I took a dump but you know go away with that like name dropping is only cool if you can do it and it's genuine and in her case it's genuine she's genuinely lived this life She's worked with and met all these people in a personal and professional capacity. And it, and she's she's not name dropping or boasting when she's talking about it. She's just talking about her life and 
Jesus, what a cool life. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to boast about next week's episode at all. Um, but it does so happen uh, that we are releasing a St. Patrick's Day special for next week from March the 17th. We have a very special guest coming from the US of A, a very special guest from Switzerland, and one more guest from a country yet to be decided. Uh, <laughs> the country what an interesting way of putting yeah. that, Karen. <laughs> the, the, yeah, let me clarify. The, con- the country does exist. It's not going <laughs> to... The country, the country is not going to be created that in the next amazing. week. We don't, we don't have that kind of power. I wish no, we did, but not we yet, don't. Luke, not yet. But, uh, the country yet yeah, to be a, decided. <laughs> we've a three-part episode coming for you next week um, with some some amazing people from all around the world and their experiences of of, of being in some way Irish and being uh, and, and their experiences of St. Patrick's Day. So that should be exciting. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today, everybody. Um, keep in touch with us on social media. Let us know how you're enjoying the shows. We had a huge reaction to last week's show with Leo Moran, uh, which was amazing. And we hope you all enjoyed Orla Sweeney this week. See you next time. Good luck. Bye. Bye.